You're listening to World Class from the Freeman Smogley Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. We bring expertise on international affairs from Stanford's campus straight to you. I'm Michael McFall, host of World Class and director of the Freeman Smogley Institute. Following our recent theme of coronavirus-related episodes, we have two new guests today to talk about COVID-19 and its potential impacts on democracy globally, as well as the upcoming U.S. presidential election. First, Professor Nate Persley. He teaches at the Stanford Law School. He is also a Freeman Spogli Institute Senior Fellow and the co-director of our Cyber Policy Center, where he also leads the program on democracy and the internet and has just recently launched the Stanford MIT Project on a Healthy Election which I'm sure we'll discuss more in detail during this podcast. We also have with us Larry Diamond, who is also a senior fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute at the Center on Democracy, Development, and Rule of Law, as well as a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and professor by courtesy in the departments of political science and sociology. His latest book published last year is called Ill Winds, Saving Democracy from Russian Rage, Chinese Ambition, and American complacency. I just absolutely love that title, so I wanted to read it today. He's known around our parts as Mr. Democracy because for decades now, he's focused his research looking at democratic trends around the world and on policies to try to make democracies better. So welcome to the program, Larry and Nate. Thank you. Larry, let's start with you. China, not only China, by the way, uh, other countries and even other individuals in our country have been proclaiming lately that its authoritarian system is superior to liberal democracy in managing a crisis like the COVID pandemic. How do you assess how democracies versus autocracies are doing in response to this global crisis right now? Well, I think we need to be a little bit humble in making assertions because uh, if we're still in inning two of a nine inning game to beat back the, and control this virus, we should be a little cautious in making presumptions about how it's gonna come out. But what we know, Mike, so far is the following. First of all, the virus was initiated. Uh, there's really no empirical basis for disputing this. The virus began in one of the world's most authoritarian regimes, namely the very same country, China, that is claiming it has a superior model. It went from being an emergent problem to being a crisis, to being an epidemic, and to then leaking out and becoming a pandemic globally because China suppressed information about it, refused to share information about it initially, and people were afraid to send up bad news to the chain of command in China. The lack of transparency in China and the fear of delivering bad news to the emperor enabled this to become a global pandemic. The second point to be made is that while China then had considerable success in suppressing the pandemic in Wuhan and containing it nationally, and again, we'll see how that develops over time, Many other authoritarian regimes, including the one that you know best, Russia, are now wrestling with very serious outbreaks of this epidemic. And again, the lack of transparency and the corruption of many of these countries is contributing a lot to the inability to control the pandemic. The third point to be made is that while the United States, in my opinion, has handled this extremely badly, 
And our lack of success owes significantly to a failure of leadership and a failure to embrace early warning on the part of the current administration in the United States. Many other democracies have done impressively well, most of all Taiwan, which has had an extremely low infection rate and has the lowest death rate of any advanced industrial democracy in the world, but also Korea, Australia, New Zealand, Germany, Israel. These are all countries that, vigorous liberal democracies that have had either pretty good or quite extraordinary success in managing the virus. So maybe it's too early to know, but do you have a, an explanation for why some democracies are doing better than others in response to the virus? Yes, I think I do. And the reason why I do is that I've been listening to the presentations of my FSI colleagues, beginning with the excellent work of our colleagues in the Center for Health Policy, and including the great work that one of its members, Jason Wong, who focuses in part on public health in Taiwan have done, but Paul Weiss, Steve Luby, Doug Owens, and many others, Karen Eggleston. I think what we learn from their work, and of course, reporting around the world, is that early responses make a very big difference. And, you know, to be fair, one reason why you've seen better success in managing this in East Asia and the Pacific region, I'll point to Korea and Taiwan again, but also Singapore, and if you will, China, once the word got out about what it was dealing with, is because they had experience with the SARS crisis in 2003. They knew what they were dealing with. And Korea, Taiwan, and Singapore all put into place public health mechanisms and policies to respond very quickly to this. And the way that Taiwan conquered SARS in 2003 and contained it from being potentially much more catastrophic was early efforts to identify and isolate those infected, to do testing, engage in contract tracing, and to screen and, if necessary, quarantine travelers. That's the formula that, if you put it in place early on, has really made a big difference. And then the other bullet points one could stress were early and widespread screening for the virus and having the capacity to do that, the use of big data analytics to track the infection and therefore alert people who might have been infected that they needed to quarantine for a period of time. These countries, Korea, Singapore, Taiwan, all had strong public health systems that were able to do this. And they all gave authority for decision-making and reporting to a very clear, centralized, coordinating mechanism. So there was very clear and consistent messaging coming from the government. And therefore, all of the messaging coming from these governments was credible and clear. And this built trust between the government and the public and compliance from the public because they knew they were getting trustworthy information. And they knew from the previous epidemic that they were going to have to have available for a future potential pandemic emergency, personal protective equipment, the face mask, the hand sanitizer, and the other gear that would be necessary. So they were also better prepared. 
Let's flip it around a little bit and talk about the pandemic, the coronavirus's effects on democracy. And well, maybe if we have time, we'll talk about throughout the world, but let's focus now on the United States. Nate, I know that before COVID, you were doing lots of publishing, in fact, sometimes together with me about election security and disinformation and those kinds of concerns about the presidential election coming up here in the United States. I think you've now flipped entirely to talking about and thinking about and trying to help bring about the ability to conduct a healthy election. Tell us a little bit about your project and what are some of the dimensions of it? Where are we at? And then we'll get to what needs to be done, maybe in another round of questions with you and Larry. So you're right, which is that, you know, I thought that I'd be spending this summer working on the questions of disinformation, foreign election interference, political advertising and the like. But when the election specific effects of the pandemic became apparent, I've pretty much dropped everything and, and am now working on this project between MIT and Stanford on a, pulling off a healthy election. Charles Stewart at MIT and I are working together. I, in some ways, I'm, t I'm putting on a hat that I used to wear when I was the research director of the Presidential Commission on Election Administration. This was the, right. a bipartisan commission that President Obama put together with also the lawyer for the Romney and Bush campaigns to deal with things like natural disasters and voting and long lines and polling places and the like. And so what we're seeing is that all of the sort of inherent dysfunctions of the American electoral system are now sort of exacerbated by the presence of the virus. And so all of these problems, whether it's long lines in polling places, decentralization of election administration, other types of problems that we see in the administration system in general, now we have to overlay upon them the problems that are specific to the virus. This That includes disinformation, by the way. We've right. The disinformation problems have now disappeared. They're just sort of turbocharged in an environment where disinformation is not just election specific, but also related to the virus and the like. And so the project that we're, we're doing is really to try to, to get the basics in place to pull off this election, to make sure that as many voters can vote by mail as possible, and any voter that votes in a polling place will not be taking their life into their hands. And so those are the solutions. Those are basically the options on the table. And the time is ticking right now because we really only have a few months if we're gonna to try to pull off this election and get the local officials the resources that they need. So let's dig into that a little bit and Larry, jump in at any time. First, Nate, just tell us how many states currently can vote by mail? How difficult would it be for all 50 states to move to vote by mail by the November election? There are only five states right now that are total vote by mail. That's Oregon and Washington, Colorado, Utah, and Hawaii. California has now said that we are going to move to vote by mail, which was is not as big a transition, even though it's an enormous state and it's going to take Herculean effort. Because you had two-thirds of voters who were voting by mail anyway in California, it's not as difficult. And to be clear, there's going to be some polling places in California. It's not like only vote by mail. But then a place like Arizona, if it wanted to go all vote by mail, would have a relatively easy transition because 75% of them vote by mail. But then in the rest of the country, you basically have a mixture of no excuse absentee balloting, which means you have to apply for a ballot, but anytime you apply for a ballot, it will be granted. And then predominantly in the South, but in parts of the interior of the country, you have excused required absentee balloting. 
And so a lot of these states that are moving, that, that have those requirements are now trying to deal with the question, well, how do COVID-specific reasons jive with the laws that require excuses for mail balloting? So right. reasonable to say, you know, look, yes, I deserve an absentee ballot and I want to vote from home because I don't want to risk my life by going to a polling place. And different states are sort of accommodating those, those kinds of requests. So it sounds like, However, some people are going to have to vote in person no matter what by November. Let's focus on the battleground states for a second, just because everybody's focused on them. Places like Wisconsin Wisconsin and Pennsylvania have absentee ballot rates or mail ballot rates in the 5% range, right? Same thing with North Carolina and Georgia. These are places that don't have a long tradition of mail ballot. Michigan, around 20% in the 25% in the 2018 election. As I mentioned, Arizona is is a little bit different, much higher rates of absentee balloting. The states that have not had large numbers of mail ballots before are completely unprepared for the transition that's coming down the the pike. And we should not expect them to be able to move to all vote by mail. And in fact, it would be undesirable to do so because they don't have the, the address lists that are necessary that would be really accurate in order to make sure that everybody gets a ballot. They don't have the equipment that they need in order to make sure that everybody can vote by mail ballot. There are subsections of the population, whether you're talking about people with disabilities or often voters of color, who really want to vote in a polling place. And so you have to supplement the mail ballot process with healthy polling places. And so that becomes a real challenge to figure out how to retrofit our polling places at a time when schools and senior living centers and firehouses are taking themselves out of the inventory of available polling places. That sounds scary to me. Larry, how scared are you? You've studied democracy emergence around the world. You've studied democracy breakdown around the world. Help us understand a comparative context about how dangerous this election is for American democracy. Let me begin by saying that there is nothing that will happen in this calendar year and probably considerably into the future that will have a bigger impact on the prestige of democracy in the world and the claims of authoritarian superiority that are being advanced cynically in the world today than whether or not the United States can hold a healthy, credible, inclusive, free and fair election. Right. If we fail in that function, if November looks like Wisconsin in early April, where large numbers of people are standing in line, were unable to get an absentee ballot, have to expose themselves to the COVID virus, and some people come down with it because of this mismanagement or lack of planning and effective execution. It's going to damage, I think, severely American prestige and soft power in the world the image of liberal democracy in the world, and just the capacity of the United States to act on the world stage, because we're going to be so consumed by the bitterness over our controversy, over uh, the conduct of our election in November, that it's going to tear us into pieces. And the only way to preempt that descent into, I'd say, polarization squared is to have a credible, transparent, inclusive, free and fair, technically competently run election. And this is why 
I keep saying to people, Nate is my hero. <laughs> He's trying to save American democracy. It's all on you, Nate. It's all on you. <laughs> I don't, don't mess that. up, I Nate, personally. Sleeping. But beyond that, Nate and uh, Mike, I do want to flag one other dimension, which I've flagged to each of you individually in recent days, and I know you're concerned about both, that I think we should not lose focus of, and which Franklin Four has addressed in a very important new article in The Atlantic, it doesn't look like Russia is done with its effort to penetrate and subvert American democracy. And we don't know what they have planned for November. We don't know to what extent they're going to exploit the knowledge they probably gained by penetrating the voter registration databases we know now of every single one of the 50 states in the 2016 election cycle. But we've got to be prepared and so uh, this is why I think the advocacy for financial assistance to the states to strengthen not only their absentee voting capacity, but also the security of their operations more generally, it's just existential right now. And we have a possibility pending before the Congress now for vastly increased funding to the states to do this. Uh, Nate wanna, might wanna say something about it that I think could still make a big difference. Thanks, Larry. And just so our listeners know, we'll post all the links to both Professor Diamond and Pershley's writings on all these topics, because they've been rather prolific in the last couple of months just to, to do deeper dives. But Nate, over to you in terms of Larry's observation about the money. First of all, how important is it to have this new money? And as we're getting to the end of our time here, what is the thing that worries you most about November? And Larry, I'll let you answer that last question to close us out as well. Well, so we need another $2 billion at least. $2 billion. Yeah. With a B. This election, yeah. I mean, because you have to understand that the, the same kinds of supply chain problems that we're confronting in the larger economy have analogs in the election space. And so you need new equipment, you need jurisdictions like the ones I was mentioning before, you need to purchase, you know, we need hundreds of millions of pieces of paper just to deal with the mail system, right? You need, you need a massive sort of investment in the democracy in order to, to make the transition that is necessary, let alone the fact that the election system is competing against the rest of the economy for PPE and sanitizer and all the other kinds of things that we need in order to pr protect poll workers. We need to mobilize the National Guard in every state that, that can do so to get both with the mail balloting process and with poll workers. Wisconsin was actually the first to ever do this for its primary. We need Pennsylvania to do that immediately for its election in a few weeks. We are losing close to two thirds of our poll workers that are normally available because wow that are older. You know, the average age of a poll worker in the U.S. is between 65 and 70, and they're not going to be want, wanting to show up. We are losing half of our polling places because the polling places either are not conducive to social distancing or they're the kind of places where they don't want 700 people coming through on, on a given day. And so all of this requires money and planning. And so the states and localities need the funding immediately in order to make the procurement decisions for the fall. The thing that worries me the most is that in the next few months, we are going to drop our guard and start thinking that we are living with the virus and maybe we will start uh, relaxing social distancing and these other measures. 
And then come October, the virus will come back in full force and any state that hadn't prepared for increased mail balloting and safe polling places will be out of luck because you cannot make these decisions in the two months before the election. It's simply going to be too late. You have to make decisions by the end of June if you want to be prepared for the fall. That sounds like a very serious concern. How about you, Larry? What's the thing that worries you the most about pulling off a free and fair election that's perceived as being free and fair by all? Well, I have two concerns. One is the one that Nate articulated. And so I echo everything he said and would just add that we've got six months to prepare for this still, to put in place the equipment, the training, the new procedures and rules, the recruitment of new personnel. I think we could mobilize college students, many of whom will be you know, not even be on their campuses in the fall, but will be back at home in their communities with, frankly, free time on their hands. There's a lot we could do with proper planning. And if we fail to do it with all this advance warning and counsel, knowing that we have the means to do it and understand what needs to be done, it will really be a historic and extremely costly failure for American democracy. The other thing I worry about with that same urgent imperative is, again, to defend our system against subversion, which I think now runs the risk of being much more sophisticated and even much more difficult to trace. And I'll repeat what the experts have been saying for many years, what the organization that I work with and admire that we can list my among the resources has been saying in testimony to the Congress and the various states, verified voting. There should never be an election of any consequence in the world, but certainly not in the United States, for any position of governmental power that doesn't leave an auditable paper trail, where if you have machine voting, and I think we should try and get away from it this November, in part because of the transmissibility of the virus on the touch screens. But if you do have machine voting, it's got to produce a paper trail that can be audited and recounted. And that's why we shouldn't have internet voting and it's a reason why we need to replace the voting machines in many states for this November. And if we don't do that, we could have an external power or a hacker of some kind changing the results and not even be able to demonstrate what happened. Wow. Well, this has been very sobering. I also just want to thank you both for the work you're doing to try to allow us to have the election that we all deserve in November. And if you don't mind, we'll just keep coming back. We could do this on a weekly basis, but I know you're too busy to do that. But I hope you'll come back and join us for another edition of World Class sometime soon in the future. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for being here. You've been listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. If you like what you're hearing, please review us on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know your thoughts. And to be sure to subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or whatever you're listening to, Stay up to date on what's happening in the world and why.